You're listening to WRIR 97.3 LP, Richmond Independent Radio, and this is Race Capital. Blackface History Month, y'all. Blackface, oh my God. Never forget. Hashtag never forget. All right, y'all. You are listening to Race Capital with me, Naomi Isaac. And me, Kalia Harris. And me, Chelsea Higgs-Wise. On the week of Wednesday, February 3rd, 2021, and it is Blackity Black History Month. And boy, do we have a lot to get into today. Let's just start by diving into the race capital reframe. In local news, this week in Eviction Watch, there are 47 unlawful detainers being heard in the courts, with Thursday being the heaviest day of 21 unlawful detainers. A reminder to our listeners that unlawful detainers are the first step a landlord takes to evict a tenant, and these numbers have gone down significantly from the number we were seeing just a few weeks ago, in large part due to the extended eviction moratorium. With that being said, even one unlawful detainer or family at risk of eviction proceedings is too many, whether it's a pandemic or not. All right. And looking towards the GA, a bill that would make it easier for Virginians to sue law enforcement officers for violating a person's constitutional rights has died. Last Friday, HB 2045, patron by Delegate Jeff Bourne, was killed in a vote of six to two, with four House Democrats voting to table the legislation. The bill would have ended an officer's ability to plead sovereign immunity in state court or qualified immunity in federal court. On the Senate side, a bill, SB 1440, with more narrow bill language but similar intents, patron by Senator Saraville, also failed to pass through this legislative body. The effort gained a popularity among community members after the deaths of Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and Marcus David Peters, among many more. And this incited months of global uprisings with protesters calling for an end to unchecked police violence. Community demands to end qualified immunity and holding police officers accountable for committing violence against Black people soon became one of the most polarizing topics during the General Assembly's 2020 special session. And we can't forget to remind everyone that the decision that came out of the legislative session in 2020 was to give every single police officer in the Commonwealth a $500 bonus. I just want to know what was all the marching for? What was all the posting on their pages? You know, all the symbolic stuff that these legislators did. And now here we are sitting in Black History Month with them not doing anything to expand protection for Black people against police. And I know there's been a lot of discourse on this, but at this point, I just want to reiterate, why do we continue to vote blue no matter who when they continue to vote the same as traditional conservatives? Also a legislative update, if you're following the marijuana legislation, is that one piece of this that I do believe has something to do with qualified immunity is that Virginia is also looking to allow cops to own dispensaries in Virginia. And with those special qualified immunity privileges, what does that mean for the profits that they're going to gain while also enforcing other marijuana related crimes? So we have people who have been convicted of felonies that might not be eligible to participate in the cannabis market, but but cops get to do it. They're not impacted at all. They haven't been harmed by the war on drugs. They're the perpetrators. Why do they get to participate? Like Jesus. And in a pandemic in Black History Month. 
In Black History Month. In Black History Month. And the way that the police unions and spokespeople came out in full force in opposition to these bills was, of course, unsurprising, but it did happen. And I think that folks should really understand that the talking points that they are using are still the same, right? Police are going to leave the forces in record numbers. Police are going to have a bunch of frivolous lawsuits. We know that folks that need to see their day in court have not been able to. And there's just data that shows that the things that they're saying are not even true. Do they hear how crazy that sounds? Losing a job or having a lawsuit is not nearly as devastating as literally losing your community member due to police violence or being assaulted by law enforcement. Particularly on the Senate side, when we start proposing things like lawsuits from residents and civilians, it just came up in the domestic workers bill this week in the House floor that with the ability for domestic workers to sue their employers for discrimination, the Senate automatically added 50k to the DOC's budget to cover these types of lawsuits. So anytime we build in protections for us to sue the state, they then build in more money of our taxpaying dollars to cover those lawsuits. It's just an automatic that happens particularly out of our Senate that I watched and I questioned. I was like, why would they do this 50K? And someone answered me, well, it's actually just kind of standard in the Senate that anytime they propose this. They really try to act like we can't do research. Well, in other news, y'all, Virginia's youngest students might be in trouble. The COVID-19 pandemic is having serious impacts on early learners in the Commonwealth, worsening a literacy crisis that has been developing in Virginia schools for the past few years. In her article, Kenya Hunter refers to a study which highlights the impact of school shutdowns downs on compounding existing racial disparities in learning and achievement. She reports that the number of kindergartners and first graders in need of early reading intervention increased 10% repeatedly. According to the phonological awareness literacy screening data, over one-fourth of kindergartners and first graders assessed last fall were found to have reading loss, meaning they were at a high risk of failing reading in the third grade. The number of low-income first graders in need of reading intervention is now at 40.6% as compared to 25.8% in 2019. Y'all. There's a direct correlation between kids being food insecure, housing insecure, and, and the impact that that has on their ability to focus on schoolwork. So there's no protections for these students that directly impacts the way that they're able to perform in school. And thank you for, for bringing that up, Naomi, because what people might hear from this is that the school system just needs more money. And what you point out is that our human basic needs need to be met. And we're seeing a symptom of those unmet needs being shown in our performance and functioning levels that our society have set for us to be able to be successful. And it's showing up in our youngest community members. And that doesn't even talk about the impact of the virus and digital learning. So as we're going through all these conversations about the superintendent and school board, this and that, I just implore folks to consider thinking about the students that are the most impacted by all of these decisions. And as we advocate for fully funding our schools, that has to also include funding to expand our feeding programs and other critical 
critical programs that will meet needs of our students. These kids also have experienced a Black uprising, which means they've also experienced this over the past year, seeing so many Black and brown people be abused and killed by police. And that also has a significant impact on your psyche because it's had a significant impact on the psyches of people who are way older than them and are grown. I, I really feel for our, our students. Elsewhere in Central Virginia, out of Charlottesville, a group of friends have created a Black-led crisis response network that will essentially act as on-call mediators in key Black neighborhoods ready to enter potentially fatal situations and talk people down. This group called Sit Downs Before Shootouts and a similar but separate group, Buck Squad, have been modeling what it looks like to remove policing from crisis response in the Black community. So as advocates are fighting to remove policing from interventions of community support, the Virginia State Police are phasing out their blue and gray sedans in favor to switch to new SUVs, which is just more money to cops. The switch would cost up to 13 grand more per vehicle. Not only do the police now get new cars, but the equipment inside the cars is not compatible compatible with the new cars, which means they will have to upgrade the equipment as well. Governor Northam has proposed the state dedicate just under 10 million dollars next fiscal year to covering the difference and cost for this upgrade y'all and just to remind everyone these new cars and vehicles for patrols and trafficking is one of the largest expenses for departments and traffic stops have proven to be deadly for black people how the police getting thirteen thousand dollars per vehicle we can't even get people incarcerated the critical services they need we're spending money on new cars is that that's not an essential that's so non-important right now And while we're still talking about how much money we're putting into cops patrolling us on the street and driving while black, but letting everyone know that the majority of marijuana arrests happen because of traffic stops. I don't know. Maybe someone should get started a cops out of traffic stops campaign. I don't know. Northam is funding the police yet again, this time for cars. He should really just do less during Black History Month. (laughs) He should do less. Mr. Blackface. Coon Man. Kalia Coon Man was his actual nickname. Get it right. We hate to see it, hate to remember it. Moving on to national news, y'all. We're going to start with our COVID watch. So in this week's COVID watch, the national number of total cases is just over 26 million. And the total deaths are 441,831. In Virginia, we have just over 500,000 total cases and the deaths have climbed to 6,517. Sabrina Moreno from the Richmond Times-Dispatch reports that even as the national numbers of COVID infections are currently down, Virginia is on the rise, y'all. So the risk of Virginians contracting COVID-19 is, quote, extremely high, and the data shows that Richmond and the surrounding counties of Chesterfield, Hanover, and Henrico had January as the worst month on record for cases, with Richmond average averaging 118 new cases per day for a total of 12,321 cases just in Richmond. Roughly 1 in 19 residents have been infected with the virus, and the VCU Medical Center is operating at a 98% ICU capacity with only two available ICU beds. In the county, Chesterfield is averaging 238 new cases per day, and Henrico, 209 cases per day. Direct correlation with our houseless population, with the fact that we have the worst protection for workers, Virginia just all around bad generally, and it's really impacting the way that COVID is uh, spreading. Yeah, and we can't discount these counties, y'all. 
In vaccination news, a huge push is underway to vaccinate Richmond's houseless population, according to Mark Robinson at the Richmond Times-Dispatch. The Daily Planet Health Services, which is a safety net healthcare provider, has begun doing a series of on-site vaccinations at homeless shelters across the city. They have 1,200 doses to distribute, and within the first two days, the team administered around 150. For those who are living in congregate settings such as group homes and shelters, they are now eligible for the vaccine under phase 1b in Virginia. I have questions about this. Is 1,200 enough doses? Yeah, how are they going to follow up with folks for the second dose? How are they going to combat the fact that the variants may make the vaccines ineffective? You know, again, the vaccine really is kind of a short-term solution to what really needs to be solved through providing critical resources for people such as housing. I'm going to keep stressing that because housing is the issue here. Speaking of the variants, Naomi, they seem to be popping up everywhere. So there's one from the UK, one from South Africa, and now Brazil. The South African variant is forcing vaccine distributors Pfizer and Moderna to look into reformulating their vaccines and potentially creating booster shots to increase the efficacy. The Brazilian variant P1 emerged in early December in Brazil and has made its way to the United States last week. The person who contracted the variant had recent travel to Brazil. The one thing I will say about these variants is that when viruses are allowed to spread, they are able to mutate. So the longer that we are unable to control the spread of this virus, the more likely we will see more and more of these variant strains. And this is commonly known scientific research. So they knew this from the beginning of the pandemic. So I just want to remind people that a lot of the things that they're saying to us and the solutions that they're offering are things that they know will fail, will not go far enough, and definitely will not protect Black, Brown, and Indigenous communities. Mutation is one of the first things you learn in infectious disease these classes and I'm not a doctor so like Governor Northam <laughs> oh clear well moving on out of New Jersey, lawmakers and Governor Phil Murphy are still not anywhere close to a final agreement on the legalization of marijuana. The past two deals have fallen through, and lawmakers from the Assembly's Black Caucus are trying to find a compromise to get legislation passed. One of the largest problems New Jersey is facing is opposition to legalization due to objections over penalties for children caught with marijuana. Interesting because right here in Virginia, it's also one of the main things that children Children will still be found as delinquent if caught for just simple possession. As it's written today, February 3rd, it looks like youth will also have to go on probation just for simple possession in order to have surveillance over them to ensure that they complete substance abuse programs. So these are the types of fights that we're really looking for if we're looking to truly legalize with a new value system of how we're treating people in proximity to this plant. So also looking at federal news, news has come out that the leader of the Proud Boys, white nationalist group, Enrique Tarrio, is a well-seasoned informant for federal and local law enforcement. The Guardian reported a Federal Bureau of Investigation agent and Tarrio's own lawyer described his undercover work and said he had helped authorities prosecute more than a dozen people in various cases involving drugs, gambling, and human smuggling. Allegedly, Tarrio began working undercover after being arrested in 2012 on fraud charges. It's been reported that he helped the FBI to prosecute 13 people since that time. However, he continues to deny these allegations. So the 
Afro-Cuban, former leader of the Proud Boys, has been selling them out to the FBI. Am I understanding that correctly? It's interesting that any type of argument could ever be made for these groups because they have people of color in them. We'll look at what roles these folks of color are playing. Ask yourself, what are they doing there? This situation reminded me of the Greensboro Massacre. If anyone doesn't know about the Greensboro Massacre, it was essentially where the Ku Klux Klan and the American Nazi Party murdered members of the Communist Workers Party who were forming a multiracial like labor organization and they were planning a death to the Klan rally. And these folks like descended upon them and murdered about five people. And Eddie Dawson was a police informant who was also heavily informed with the organizing of the the events that took place. And so it kind of just reminded me of this history that, you know, exists where the cops and Klan literally go hand in hand. The role of the FBI in historically attacking our movements. I think a lot of folks do know this, but reminding folks that there's actually like a lawsuit for admitting Martin Luther King was murdered by the state, y'all. So just remember this, that FBI has literally murdered, not just tried to kill our movement, but has literally killed leaders. Yeah, like Fred Hampton, who the Chicago police and FBI has taken credit for being involved in his assassination. The FBI has known for a minute now that white supremacists and white nationalists are the largest quote-unquote terrorist threat to the nation, and there's been no action because, again, they are in cahoots. These are their friends, these are their buddies, and these are people who are giving them information and they find them useful. They don't see a need to want to uh, protect the public from them. Right. Well, we are looking to protect ourselves and it looks like the black lives matter movement has been nominated for a nobel peace prize for quote the way it's called for systemic change has spread around the world end quote by norwegian mp peter Eid. nominations for the nobel peace prize are accepted from any politician serving at a national level there were more than 300 nominations for last year's award including a nomination for 45 world food program ultimately won stacy abrams has also been nominated for this year's award. I mean, the Nobel Peace Prize, when you think about it, who's won this before? The EU, the UN, you know, mass perpetrators of imperialism, Obama, who dropped like 26,000 bombs in over seven countries, Henry Kissinger. So, okay. Is all I have to say about that. Are we going to be able to defund the police? It's given to the Black Lives Matter Global Network, which there's a lot of contention between the global network and more local organizing bodies. So... Moving into other news, in Texas, Austin City Council voted to approve the city use of around $6.7 million to purchase a hotel that would be turned into permanent supportive housing units for the city's homeless population, the appeal reports. The money is being taken from a recurring $6.5 million fund taken from what? The police budget. The city cut $20 million from its police budget, drawing from overtime, cadet classes, and funding previously used for unfilled positions and redistributed in addition. Additional $80 million to other government agencies that took over certain duties previously run by the police department. Texas's governor, Greg Abbott, has threatened to, to punish localities that cut law enforcement budgets by cutting access to tax revenues. If things like this are happening in other cities, I really want to challenge folks in Richmond to especially not let city council when they say things like there is never going to be a world in which the Richmond police is defunded. Don't let them stifle your radical imagination because it's not that far off. It's literally happening in states away that people are getting this money. They're cutting the budgets. They're taking it and really providing for the community. So we can do it here. We just have to put the pressure on them. And I mean, Austin is a shining blue light 
in a very red sea of Texas. So it is very possible for us as the South to have these pockets of places where we make these changes. It's possible even in the South. In other national news, 46 has frozen arms sales to Saudi Arabia and is examining sales to the United Arab Emirates, including the sale of Lockheed Martin jets, which were approved as part of the Trump administration's UAE normalization deal with Israel last year. Biden's admin has vowed to end the U.S. support of the Saudi-led war on Yemen, Democracy Now! reports. I just want to know how much violence that Biden has actually cause is he going to have to now commit to rectifying and I I really do just want to note that you know Biden helped start this war under the Obama administration the United States was responsible for providing weapons helping identify bomb targets helping provide like refueling to Saudi and UAE warplanes helping provide political cover for them so that they wouldn't get in too much heat so this is all a product of the Obama Biden administration same as the war on drugs same as every other war on anything you know Biden's had a heavy hand in So we'll see what he does. Sadly, Naomi, we are already seeing what he's doing. As we observe Black History Month, the United States under the Biden administration has conducted airstrikes in Somalia at a rapid pace. It may seem like the U.S. war on Somalia was coming to an end since Trump's administration withdrew 700 troops from the country in an order that went into effect on January 15th. But The African Command, also known as AFRICOM, a U.S. project that has allowed the U.S. to expand military presence in Africa, has conducted a total of six airstrikes in Somalia as of January 24th, according to a spokesperson from AFRICOM. Now, it's important to note that local reports often conflict with official statements from AFRICOM, as we can expect. But special forces and drone strike operations are set to continue in the country, and at the current rate, 2021 is on course to surpass the number of airstrikes conducted in Somalia in previous years. And the troops that were withdrawn from Somalia are being sent to other African countries, such as Kenya. U.S. imperialism has a long history of destabilizing progressive governments in Somalia and throughout the African continent. And we here at Race Capital stand in solidarity with all of those demanding an immediate end to AFRICOM. Just connecting like what's happening domestically is that we know what happens when they take resources out of Black communities, they bring cops in. And so imperialism facilitates the the mass divestment of Black peoples on a global scale. And then the United States brings in the global police. And they're all trained by who? Israel. In other news, currently the world's richest nations have paid for hundreds of millions of COVID-19 vaccine doses, many times in far excess of what they need, while poorer nations are left without adequate access to vaccinations. Canada has pre-ordered enough vaccines to cover its population five times over, while Nigeria's 200 million people haven't received a single dose of the vaccine. And researchers from Duke University have said that many developing countries will not be fully vaccinated until 2024, giving the virus years to spread and mutate. The cost of this global inequality could cause economic losses of up to $9.2 trillion. Half of those losses would be had by the richest countries. Not to mention just the loss of life. For this to continue to spread and mutate until 2024? It's disgusting. 
this is just continuing a legacy of medical apartheid that, you know, rich capitalist countries have participated in for centuries now. South Africa's president, Cyril Ramaphosa, who also chairs the African Union, urged wealthy nations not to hoard the surplus vaccine supply. South Africa has recorded nearly half of Africa's total COVID-19 deaths. The World Health Organization has described the unequal access as a catastrophic moral failure. One country in Africa has accounted for nearly half of the continent's total deaths from the virus. I know that we've thrown a lot of statistics at folks today, but I hope that this one lands home as we talk about medical apartheid in a country that has experienced apartheid. And that is the Race Capital Reframe for this week. Yeah, every week, something new. It's Black History Month, y'all. This Black History Month, we will be focusing on the work that's been done in the recent past for liberation and the present struggle to get free here in the fallen capital of the Confederacy. Today, we examine the work being done around police transparency and interrogating the relationship between BCUPD and RPD. We go back into the archives and hear audio from the May 8th, 2019 Race Capital episode where Adiola Ogunkiedi and Wyatt Rolla of LAJC, plus Dr. Eli Kaufman, all representing RTAP, joined to summarize the fight that started in 2017 to where they left off in 2019, resisting the record management system. Then we share testimony from 2019, as well as just from a couple weeks ago, from January 26th, both from public safety committees here and the city council. And lastly, we'll hear from Stephen Romligan from VCU Student Power. We're here joined by all three hosts as we analyze the upcoming records management system, MOU ordinance, being heard in city council on February 8th. Stay tuned. Legal Aid Justice Center. And Adiola already told you a little bit about our program. And I'll tell you a little bit about, uh, a little more about the origin of RTAP, the Richmond Transparency and Accountability Project. When our programs, the Civil Rights and Racial Justice Program at LAJC was very young, it was in our first half year of existence, we had a coworker who brought us to the table with Southerners on New Ground, which is a queer liberation organization. They work with folks of color and working class folks in the South who are LGBTQ. When you all started out, what year was this? In the fall of 2017, independently, a chapter in Southside in Blackwell of New Virginia Majority had done door knocking. They'd knocked on 700 doors to ask people to identify the top issue in their community. What would they want to organize around? And policing was the top issue. At the same time, Song, their particularly trans and gender nonconforming members, had had multiple experiences with officers in the Richmond area where they were treated disrespectfully in ways that made them feel unsafe. And they had both reached independently a demand for greater police accountability. And we're thinking through methods of civilian oversight and other ways that we could have more community control and accountability from our police department. So 
both those groups had reached out independently and we came together, as Adiola mentioned, to provide legal support for those or those organizing efforts. And initially what that looked like, because community members had were getting together, they were holding town halls and really bearing witness to their offering testimony to their experience of policing in Richmond. Mm-hmm. And they had a lot of pushback where the response from city officials, both the police department, city councilors, was that these are anecdotes. Mm. Um, they're individual stories. They may be, you know, whether they may be from a long time ago or that may have been a bad apple. Did you file a complaint? Did you file a civilian complaint? Wow. If you did, it would have been addressed. And they, it was very dismissive. And the community members came to us and said, is there any support you can provide to push back on this? And we ended up filing a series of what are called Freedom of Information Act requests. So public records requests to say, we want the data that the Richmond Police Department keeps on itself, on its officers' behavior, to say, we believe that the community members are truth tellers Mm. and they're carrying their own stories and that those should be listened to in and of themselves. But can we also provide some scaffolding in which to contextualize these stories to say that's not one person who experienced that. That's one of 817. Right. I just made that number up, but (laughs) let's say. (laughs) So initially when we filed the Freedom of Information Act request, they were denied okay. through a series of meetings that we ended up having with the former chief of police, Chief Durham and Mayor Stoney. The Richmond Police Department did agree to produce the data that we were requesting. When they when they sent us the document saying, here's the data we can produce, they also said, here's the $4,500 price tag for that data, essentially arguing that it was going to take them so many additional hours of labor to produce the data sets that would be above and beyond what they would normally be doing. And so um, we actually, RTAP had a petition to release the data and waive the fees. And we got, in the end, I think over 400 people signed on to that. And Mayor Stoney did end up waiving the fees for the data. At this point, we've received all of the data from those requests. He agreed to waive the fees that were calculated for this specific data request. And I think another thing that's important is that the Richmond Police Department has, we've had a series of exchanges with them about transparency, one of which was focused on officer use of force and the results of civilian complaints against officers. Mm-hmm. That was also a lengthy battle over, I think it was over six months. And eventually RPD agreed every month to publicly post on their website information on officer use of force against civilians and the results of civilian complaints that are filed against officers. That's ongoing. It's posted to their website every month. And Dr. Costing can speak a little bit about maybe at some point the potential limitations to that data, some flaws that may be in that data, but it is ongoing. Mm-hmm. What I think it's important for people to know about this second set of data, it's really important data that the community said was its priority. It's data on um, what people will call stop and frisk or what the police department will call field interviews or Ah. pedestrian contacts and also traffic stops. And I think it's important to know, though, that they agreed to release about 18 months of data to us, but it's a one-time data release. It's a pool of data that is historical that we fought with them to release without charging thousands of dollars to the public to see this information. But there's been no commitment to produce that on an ongoing basis. And there's been no commitment from the mayor that any future requests will be responded to, let alone responded to without charge. Something for people who might be listening in to take away is that when it came to certain pieces of information, it was it's always been pulling teeth with RPD to get them to release the data. But when it came to the stop and frisk numbers, that was a particular fight where they dug their heels in for a while. That's the fight to which they slapped the huge fee bill. That's the fight 
that it took the pressure on Mayor Stoney to get RPD to switch gears. It took some time to get them to agree to release the use of force data and the civilian complaint data. But as Dr. Costin will tell you, that data, while probative of some issues, is not particularly robust and not particularly well fleshed out. That's not to say that the data on stop and frisk is more robust or more or better fleshed out, but that piece of information how they are policing communities in Richmond and what the demographics look like of their stops, of their questions, of their searches was an area where RPD was particularly intractable and unwilling to move forward without significant escalation of pressure on them in the form of pressure from Mayor Stoney and increased sort of like community awareness. Yeah. So in regard to the Marcus David Peters incident, what happened there was the Richmond Police Department was posting these monthly use of force reports to their website, but they weren't including any uses of firearms. So if a firearm had been used against a citizen, that didn't appear at all in the 2017 data. And this was actually what was a red flag to me is because usually when cities, particularly the size of Richmond, if there are no officers that discharge their weapons, mm -hmm. it's a big deal. It makes news. Yeah. And so when I was looking through the codes and I realized no firearms appeared, I knew something had to be wrong. So I went back, I started looking through media reports. There were people who were killed where there was no firearm use of force reported. And so in that sense, there was omitted data right. from this data set. But the other problem with this data across the board is that so much of it is discretionary. When you look at the use of force reports, those are reported, self-reported by officers when they use force that is above and beyond what is, quote, departmentally approved. So an officer can take someone to the ground, put them in a joint lock, physically restrain them, but they don't have to report that because it's not beyond what's departmentally approved. Wow. And so when you're looking at that use of force data, right. what you're really talking about is only instances of force. And so that's really problematic. We right. saw racial disparities in that data. Also, when we look at the field interview reports, that's largely discretionary data. That Those are produced when an officer says, I see something that's noteworthy. Mm -hmm. Well, what's noteworthy is completely up to an officer's discretion. Right. And so... They're not required to produce these for every single person they stop. And so when we see racial disparities in this kind of discretionary reporting, what it's really telling us about is officers' perceptions. Mm. Officers are perceiving Black people as being more suspicious than they're perceiving white people to be. Right. And we know that from a lot of the data that was put out about a month ago or so, just looking at the police interventions in the city. And just a couple of them, 98% of police reports for curfew violation were Black people, 90% of traffic stops for warrant violations were Black people, 87% of police reports for driving without a valid license were Black people, only 48% of us are Black. And one of the things that I think it's really important for listeners to be aware of about these field interview reports is that they're not necessarily indicative of criminal activity. 
Mm. Right. I mean, by definition, I think the easiest example to look at is some of the individuals who were allegedly stopped or had there was suspicion that they may have been violating a curfew were over were 18 or over. So by definition, they cannot violate a curfew ordinance. Right. Right. It's an entry point to the just the, the criminal justice system, because as soon as they are approaching and that intervention happens, then the likelihood of other charges and other interventions and interactions with the police that increases right there. It's just the stop and frisk versus the field interview is a very good way of changing the narrative and misleading people to know what's actually happening there. Yeah. And that was a that was part of our fight with RPD in some of the Freedom of Information Act requests that were made. Mm -hmm. We referenced the data as stop and frisk numbers and mm -hmm. RPD pushed back aggressively right. against the use of that terminology, <laughs> disclaiming that the Richmond Police Department engages in stop and frisk. First of all, stop and frisk is essentially a, a, a legal term. Right. It is stop and frisk is in and of itself legal where we have what has happened in New York. New York's particular, the NYPD's particular brand of stop and frisk Dang. was declared unconstitutional. But the practice of stopping an individual based on what the legal standard is, reasonable, articulable suspicion, and then frisking them if the officer reasonably believes the person to be armed that is still legal right. all across the United States. So what the officer believes, what the officer perceives, it's all very discretionary right. on the officer. And what is happening, obviously, is there's a, and the standard is being alighted and you have post hoc justification where there is an actual reasonable, articulable suspicion and the officer doesn't actually have the level of information necessary to stop someone or search them. And that's what was happening in New York. What was happening instead was proxies such as race, neighborhood, other things were being used. Mm -hmm. And that's what officers were using to stop individuals. Um, and we know that's happening here in Richmond as well. But mm -hmm. police departments like RPD are trying to to get out of the nasty shadow that NYPD's stop and frisk program cast on stop and frisk practices to try and rebrand what they do mm -hmm. and say they don't engage in stop and frisk. And we know that that is patently inaccurate. And then RPD's data systems are, they say, antiquated. We say, you know, potentially, like, this is the way they were designed. The system will not keep and track and allow us to know who from the field interview report stage was then arrested and what information there is to sh to match up the field interview report card with arrest data. And what we really wanted was whether searches were performed as a result of these field interviews or these pedestrian encounters. Mm -hmm. And their response was, well, that isn't it. That would be recorded in just an open text box. They would put in there any notes that they were thinking, but also if they had searched someone and if there was evidence turned up or not. But because it's all in these text boxes, they said that they couldn't actually distill that information and say definitively whether a search had occurred or not. 
In our interaction with Mayor Stoney, one of the commitments that we were able to get from him, in addition to waiving this $4,500 in fees to provide the pedestrian contact and traffic stop data, was that he would engage the public in a discussion around RPD's records management system. So their their data capture and reporting system is called their records management system, their RMS. And they had put out a request, what's called a request for proposals, an RFP, to say, we want to redo this system. You know, the mm-hmm. thing that Adiola just said, it's antiquated we can't everything's in different databases we want to redo it and we were in the middle of this epic years-long battle with rpd over data and said you have to talk to the community about really what data they in the rfp actually included an ask for a public facing portal so a portal that okay. the community could go into and pull down certain information about policing yes and we said, you, you've got to have a space for the community to come tell you what needs to be in that portal, right. what RPD need, officers need to be capturing and what we need to be able to access. Mm-hmm. And then the flip side of that, that Dr. Costin maybe will speak a little bit more on is we also want to we want to tell you what kind of s- police surveillance and data sharing we don't want. Um, And we don't want you giving information to other law enforcement agencies, you know, for example, to ICE or, you know, we want to be able to have a space to tell you that. And Mayor Stoney committed to holding a session for public engagement around the new records management system. We also committed to having a community meeting after Marcus David Peters' death around policing and mental health. But it is almost a year later next week, and we have not had that meeting. But sounds good. Mayor Stoney did not host a meeting on the records management system. And we know that the RPD signed a contract with a company called Global Soma to provide that service. When was this? The contract was signed in late January. I believe okay. Global Soma put out a press release in early February. And we wrote a letter to say, we, you know, we saw that this contract has been signed and we would like to know when the public engagement will be. And we did not receive a response. Mm-hmm. So we decided to host our own forum. And we did that last month and we listened to community members and they had a lot to say okay. about what data they want and what kind of surveillance they do not. We gave that information to Mayor Stoney in a letter again and uh-huh. said we there were some questions about RPD's plans and the city's plans for this records management system and for policing that we cannot answer. And we would like dates from you and Interim Chief Smith of when you are available to meet with the community to discuss these priorities and answer their questions. And we asked for a response by May 1st, which is today, the day we were recording this. And as of 446, we do not have a response. And the... Soma Global announcement on their website of the contract between RPD and their company specifically says that the platform will allow for deployment across multiple jurisdictions and features spanning use across the Richmond City Sheriff's Office and the Virginia Commonwealth University. So this is a platform that extends to multiple agencies and the university, right, Mm -hmm. in the city of Richmond. And the city has not done anything to engage the community around this platform, how it will be developed, its use, and other issues that the community said they wanted to provide input on and that the mayor promised he would accept their input on. And I think it's important to also mention that Soma Global prides themselves on being one of the leaders in predictive technologies for policing. And so essentially, based on crime data, which we know is already problematic because they base it on a lot of discretionary factors. Right. And so those kind of inputs go into these data systems, and then they use that to predict whether crime will occur in certain areas. And proactively deploy police to those areas 
to actually increase surveillance in those communities. And so residents were really concerned about this. Yeah. They don't want predictive policing taking place in Richmond. So this is Gerald himself saying that this MOU between Richmond Police Department and BCU PD will increase predictive policing here in Richmond. When she spoke about the, tra the trends and patterns that uh, you're able to pick up from the data that is in there, um, as we know that trends and patterns do not always um, obey the, the lines that we draw on a map, such as uh, as well with you, with the council members, you know, council members an issue in your district and other people's districts often cross lines and you have to collaborate to make sure that those trends and patterns um, do not affect or do use those trends and patterns and improve those trends and patterns for the betterment of Virginia. This is the same thing that uh, we're doing here with this information. Trends and patterns that you can pick up. We know that um, just to be blunt, rapists do not pay attention to lines on a map. They will travel from one location to another. People who rob will travel from one location to another. And the information that this will allow us to exchange will help us to pick up on those patterns and trends to be able to share that information very rapidly in order to pick up on that information in order to, to stop it. It is, and that is what we do with the data. Uh, there's nothing um, nefarious about it. It's pretty straightforward. And you say that's not surveillance. That's literally what predictive policing sounds like. We know that there's more than enough evidence that Richmond needs to stop and take a look at how police departments are managing and using its records management system. But there are a set of unique concerns when considering allowing the VCU police department to access and use the same data system. These concerns are that historically racial bias and the arrest behavior of the VCU police department are still freaking here. There's a lack of transparency about policing jurisdiction for community members between VCU and RPD. Um, I had a question. Uh, is the data used um, that's collected, is that used for surveillance purposes? No. Um, okay. No, ma'am. Oh. Okay. This is something that the community heavily resisted even coming into play. Some are saying the surveillance, you know, in black and brown communities are being affected. Some are saying that the surveillance isn't um, what the data is used for. I mean, as a, as a VP of this committee, I didn't hear anything from the administration until like five minutes before the meeting. I couldn't speak to hear what the other side is, but I have an overwhelming side of no. As well as very little community accountability and oversight over the VCU police department in general. Less than 20% of the student population at VCU is Black, and about 15% of the faculty population is Black. But Black people accounted for more than 48% of the people arrested by VCU PD in 2019 for all offenses and 51% for drug offenses. A record management system that uses predictive policing and hotspot approaches to policing and does not include community oversight is bound to reinforce these racially unjust patterns of policing. The information and the availability of, availability of real-time data, pattern, 
and trends is significant and as being able to re react very timely to situations. A recent national study on the activities and behavior of campus police forces nationwide listed the increased arrests of Black people at VCU starting in the early 2000s as one of the most notable trends nationwide. Members of the community in and around VCU also have no insight into who is policing them and why. Without clear dividing lines of jurisdiction, it's even more difficult for a member of the Richmond community to seek justice for police misconduct, unlawful searches and arrests, or harassment or murder by the police. Community members may not be aware of who is authorized to police them depending on where they are in the city and may not know that the information and may not know that the information collected on them while a student at VCU can follow them indefinitely in their future in Richmond. The issues with lack of transparency and accountability for RPD are also true of the VCU police force because if a community member who's not a student or an employee of VCU is unlawfully detained or harassed by a VCU police officer, what is their opportunity for recourse? Where can they issue a complaint? The lack of transparency and oversight of campus police forces is a well-documented national challenge and increasing the exchange of information between VCU and RPD encourages VCU police to pursue joint operations with RPD and expand the scope of policing on campus without making any investment and in expanding the opportunities for community transparency and input. So I remember marching outside the VCU PD with students, with community members, members of staff, faculty, who were demanding the abolition of VCU PD. I think expanding their power in this city is shown by the data to not be anything but increased surveillance. Not only that, but y'all, we have heard from Gerald himself. He said it, trends and patterns. This is what the trends and patterns do. They increase policing and arrests and our interactions with the police, which can be deadly. We don't want that. If they're not gonna defund RPD anytime soon, we can start with VCUPD. And just remember that these trends and patterns that Gerald is saying that we absolutely need is literally the garbage in, garbage out, that is predictive policing. So don't allow him to gaslight us. Don't allow city council to be complicit in the gaslighting. And don't allow them to not hear us just because they've decided to refer a no vote for the full city council coming up on February the 8th. It's important that all voices be heard and it's important to show that this has been years now, multiple years of resistance to this specific uh, records management system. We don't want it, the students don't want it. Race Capital. I am joined here today with Student Power VCU. We are continuing up on our conversation of policing in the city and how it is impacting uh, campuses and how students are responding. Uh, can you go ahead and introduce, introduce yourself to the listeners? Well, my name is Steven, or I go by Damon. Uh, my pronouns are he, they, and I'm a uh, facilitator with Student Power at VCU. Um, I'm one of the core organizers on the team 
essentially attempting to create power networks for students and community members uh, throughout the Richmond area. And over the summer, you all did a lot of great work to really push students on campus to be involved in uh, opposing policing. And during the summer, you all put up a petition to have the CUPD defunded with the mission of abolishing it eventually. Can you tell me a little bit more about the goals of the campaign in general? So initially the defund VCU PD campaign um, called for four specific factors um, in order for student and community demands to be sent to VCU um, for them to respond and to act accordingly in the interests of community members and VCU students. Um, these demands were also derived essentially from the Richmond community demands, which during the time last summer um, were being spread throughout different various organizations and solidarity. Um, so Student Power VCU wanted to make sure that we recognize that BC students stood in solidarity with the community. Um, the four demands on it were the first one is to defund BCU PD, um, calling for the defunding and abolition of BCU's uh, police department, to have it sever ties with any outside policing institutions, and to redirect all funds from BCU PD to mental health services, other accessible facilities uh, for students on campus, and then creating supportive spaces for undocumented students. Um, that was the first factor. The second factor was releasing the VCUPD uh, line item budget for the last five years. We wanted to know where the money was coming from, how they were spending it, um, and why we were paying <laughs> for, frankly, 44% of VCUPD's um, funding. The third factor was to remove the LiveSafe app um, from VCU. This is an app in which students can essentially report on other students about unlawful or illicit activity that they're having, um, and this goes directly to BCUPD. It's essentially another way of VCU just continuing to want to surveil and police students on campus. Essentially, so the LiveSafe app was a way for VCU to continue the legacy of predictive policing um, and also to identify people on campus um, that were engaged in illicit or prohibited activities. Um, so all the information was going directly to BCUPD. Um, and assisting in surveilling students, not only just students on campus, but organizers that were also students. It essentially allowed administration direct contact with VCUPD and these people. And then the fourth factor was um, banning and remo removing ICE on campus um, to ensure that undocumented students um, are protected. Speaking of predictive policing, we know right now that there is an effort being made by RPD and BCUPD to, you know, sign a, an MOU, a memorandum of understanding, so that they're able to share a record management system, which will allow them to predict trends and patterns, as Gerald Smith said, so that they can ensure better public safety for the city. And so I guess my question is, and probably a lot of folks' question is, why is it that BCUPD needs to become more like a municipal police force? What are they doing right now with their budget to actually ensure public safety for students on campus? So if, if I, they are doing anything. The public safety model that BC proposed, basically what happened was we submitted these demands to them and they offered no response. Um, they offered that they were going to eventually follow up in the future, um, but the, no specific uh, demand would be made now. However, a week or two afterwards, they released their own public safety model, which is essentially kind of a strange rehashing of some of the stuff that we went over in our model. I'm talking specifically about like uh, student safety on campus and also like um, ensuring that RVA community members are taken care of as well. And additionally, they're the largest um, urban police force in Virginia. They have what, 95, I think 97 officers currently right now. Um, one of the largest police forces in the country. 
Um, and what they claim to be protecting is student interests because they are exposed into the urban environments of the RVA community, as though BCU is the sheltered off portion from the rest of Richmond, which doesn't necessarily like have crime or have like anything like that going on, I guess. And so I think the, the biggest thing to take into consideration is that uh, VCUPD is directly in line with RPD in that they're acting in accordance with one another. So whatever RPD and the larger Richmond uh, sort of uh, policing efforts are, is directly going to affect VCUPD because at the end of the day, it's property over people. So that's very reflective of what occurred over the summer. You spoke about students who were also doing community organizing, being targeted by the, not only were they targeted by the police, but they were targeted by VCUPD and that directly translated to you know, having actions taken against students on campus, right? Yeah, so essentially what happened was individuals, uh, organizers that had been on the ground the entire time uh, this past summer were being targeted by VCU administration um, for, you know, small things that seemed as though they were minute, but were being exaggerated um, in the case of against specific students that were organizers. Um, and these demerits were, you know, threatening with like suspension from the VCU, um, threatening them with other things uh, like censorship. So being unable to um, speak freely on social media. You know, we've had people that are in organizations that the VCU that are being barred from having their free speech um, through their organization. So it's some, something definitely to say about administration that's working in tandem with VCUPD. And so you all have, like I said, have been calling to defund the campus police and eventually abolish them. You also had a campaign, I know, to get initially cops out of mental health services that happened on VCU's campus. So can you talk to me a little bit more about what student power of VCU would have in mind if they were to dismantle policing on campus, right? Because everyone's going to ask, oh, well, you know, how are they going to keep people safe? So let's just like in the questions and, you know, Tell us what the vision is to reinvest the money that would come from defunding and eventually abolishing the VCUPD. So it's funny that you said that because somebody literally today commented on our petition and was like, what are we going to do, you know, when people are running around and committing all these crimes and like, are we going to arm ourselves like, you know, one of those t typical like troll comments that you get. And so the biggest thing is VCU reinvesting not only in VCU itself and the students that are going to the university, but also reinvesting in the Richmond community is the biggest thing that we emphasize in our petition, ensuring that we're supporting um, Black communities that have been gentrified by VCU in the community, that we're providing accessible places of healthcare, mental health resources, not only to VCU students, but that are accessible to people in the community as well. Um, and so the biggest thing is trying to make sure that VCU reallocates that funding not into other forms of policing, either that or going indirectly into Richmond itself or RPD, um, but making sure that those funds are being reallocated into community interests and student interests, making sure that VCU is more accessible and inclusive. You know, a lot of people probably wonder, why do y'all care? You're here for four years, you can leave, you can come get your education, get your degree, and then leave. Why do you all uh, advocate so persistently that, you know, students should be involved in what's going on in the local community, especially when it comes to the way that policing is being expanded. So I think that's a question that we get all the time too, um, from people, you know, asking 
especially students, sometimes students come from the position where they are here only for four years and they stay on VCU in this general area. They go home on weekends, they're never here, you know, but people don't realize the space that you take up in the environment. And as a person that may only be here for a few years, you're a guest in the greater Richmond community. So I think for a lot of us, it comes from um, different aspects of wanting to uh, make sure that the Richmond community that we either leave or remain a part of is something that is taken care of so that people, future VCU students are taking care of the area as well. Because we know that VCU administration is not gonna do that. And we know that VCU PD is not gonna do that. Um, so it's on the responsibility of us as students to take what privilege and what power that we have because we are privileged being in higher academia, having that capability of being um, able to, you know, have an education here, which a lot of people in the Richmond community are not afforded. So coming from that position of, you know, economic and financial privilege, and being able to give back to the community, I think is the largest part because at the end of the day, you know, you could be here for four years and then you could leave for four years and nobody would say anything about it. You know what I mean? You're not going to feel some sort of way. Somebody else is not going to feel some sort of way, but the people that are going to be here when you leave are going to be directly affected by everything that you do in this city. So I think it's really important for people to be a lot more mindful, a lot more cognizant when they're thinking about why it is that we, you should act a specific way or why it is that you should um, go out and, you know, try to assist somebody in the community. Yes, that's the gospel. And so we know that the city council meeting that's going to actually decide whether or not VCUPD and RPD continue to share a record management system is coming up on February 8th. What can students that are going to VCU do to support making sure that this memorandum is not approved? And how can the Richmond community support VCU's efforts to defund police on campus? So I think for students, especially getting involved with other organizations, whether or not it's Student Power VCU or other organizations at VCU that are doing that work, um, and you know there will be calls to actions. Stay tuned. There will be calls to action, um, but especially directly contacting your um, council members to make sure that they're aware of the demands that you have as students, and that we do not want the record management system to be uh, continued between VCU PD and RPD because that is dangerous um, for marginalized uh, communities. It is dangerous for you know Black and Indigenous people of color on campus and off campus. One of the things that our uh, petition had said was 1,643 stop and frisk interviews were conducted by VCPD in 2019, and a thousand of those interviews were conducted on Black people. And making sure that we message, you know, council members and make sure that they know that we do not want to continue this, this cycle of predictive policing. And for people in the Richmond community um, trying to assist in defunding VCUPD, um, just boosting, I guess, the message. Um, also, directly contacting administration, you can do it too. Um, their emails are open, not just to students. Yeah. Um, and they oftentimes, I think, sometimes get thrown off when community members message them. They're like, hey, other groups and organizations. Um, because, you know, VCUPD, while it is still a large force, it is smaller than RPD. Um, and if we can tackle getting VCUPD defunded and abolished and reallocating those resources, imagine where we can go to next in the fight for getting RPD down. So. I think of it maybe not necessarily in a linear scale, but essentially if we can tackle one domino, maybe another one can, can fall pretty soon. So Come on. And, and you all uh, have a podcast where you were updating folks on what's happening in campus. Are we going to be hearing from that again soon? You will. You will. It's funny that you bring that up, um, but you will definitely be hearing about it uh, again soon. We did a lot of um, work trying to 
um, radicalized students over the past semester. So I'm getting them involved in direct community, Richmond community initiatives, getting them informed and educated, um, because a lot of times you won't hear any of this conversation in the classroom. You know, I sit in Zoom classes uh, throughout the day and I'm like, uh, just grinds my gears sometimes listening to people talk about things that they kind of don't know what they're talking about but getting students educated with information that's coming directly from the community and from community members that are affected by these issues, that information will be on the podcast. But yeah, we got a little something coming. It's education decolonization. And in the meantime, while we're waiting for you all to have the capacity and time with you know the semester to get that back up and running, where can folks keep up with your work? So our Instagram and Twitter is probably where you can reach us the best. Um, it's gonna be at studentpowervcu for both our Instagram and our Twitter account. Um, and if people want to, I guess, get more directly involved, we have a group me chat, which we continue to spread information um, and try and get people connected to the right people. But we always are looking to support and boost uh, people with adjacent or aligning messages. Um, so we really encourage people to reach out to us because we love having those interactions with other orgs or groups. Richmond's lower-income and Black communities 
are not seen in other areas in the city where more um, individuals who are of higher incomes reside or predominantly white areas. I would like to say note that my colleagues at the Office of the Public Defender and I are not the only ones who have noticed this phenomenon. During jury selections in a recent trial, the panel of jurors were asked if they had traffic stop interactions with Richmond police officers. With the judge, prosecutor, defense attorney, and entire panel present, one juror told the court that he lived in North Churchill and the police often pulled him over for his factory window tent but then let him go when they see that he is white. If one considers the Richmond Police Department's disparate profile in the black community to be a secret, then the secret is currently getting out. The data, the data released by the Richmond Police Department this year shows that blacks are nearly three times more likely to be detained and charged than our whites. That data, however, only represents the tip of the iceberg. The data is insufficient because it does not give any indication about reasons that the detentions, whether searches were conducted, and whether any searches resulted in the discovery of contraband, and even whether charges were issued were ultimately sustained by conviction. I suspect that the more data will reveal empirically what I know to be true. The Richmond Police Department engages in systematic profiling of the Richmond Black community. I urge City Council to move for more transparent, accountable, and equitable policing. As our elected representation, I ask the Council to hold a public meeting in the RPD's new records management system, and that such meeting is to be a start on an ongoing conversation steeped with community input. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Briggs. The next speaker is Princess Blanding. My name is Princess Blaine, sister of Marcus David Peters. I am here today to address police and elected official accountability. As you all know, on May 14th, my brother Marcus David Peters was shot and killed by a Richmond police officer while unarmed, completely undressed, and experiencing a mental health crisis. Both the former chief of police and LeVar Stoney promised a community meeting to address police policies, procedures, and accountability after the investigation was completed. One year later, and still the promised community meeting has not taken place. Stoney has also broken his promise to the Richmond Transparency and Accountability Project. His promise to listen to the community on how the Richmond Police Department captures and shares information on its policing with the public. As the mayor of Richmond, this is unacceptable. The Richmond Police Department, along with our elected officials, continuously show their constituents that in their eyes, black lives don't matter. Former Police Chief Durham took the easy way out of retirement. Stoney clearly is not a man of his word. While the interim Police Chief Smith has been mute, clearly confirming that he too is not fit to fill the shoes of Richmond Police Chief. Not one city council member has taken a stand as it is clearly easier and safer to travel the path of least resistance. As Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. said, the ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. President Council, what will you do to hold the Barstoni accountable? What will you do to hold the board accountable for protecting the lives of those most vulnerable? While the city's administration continues to carry the same sentiment that Stoney's press secretary, Jim Nolan, had, which is 
is that he wished that these people go away. I am here to assert that we can't and we won't go away. That's right. Until we get justice and reformation. We will not accept zero accountability for the murder of Marcus David Peters. We will not accept our children being threatened by police officers with threats such as, wait until your ass is turned 18, then you're mine. We will no longer deal with the racial profiling, dehumanizing, poor quality education, disrespect, harassment, and unjust feeling of our people. We refuse to accept that Tommy the dog's life is more valuable than black lives. Right. When that life is speed, Tommy's goal was put in place, where black people have been fighting for liberation for hundreds of years. President Council, as a black people, the pigmentation of our skin is automatically put a big red X on our backs. On this day, I made a promise to you. I, we will no longer ask for equity. We will no longer accept our children disappearing and being murdered by those sworn to protect the serve. We will no longer wait for a racist, oppressive system to liberate us. It will move each and every one of y'all to take a stand in support of justice and reformation. We deserve better. We demand better, and we will resist and organize until we have that. Now I'm done, and you're welcome. Thank you, Ms. The next speaker is Costin, Madam President and Honorable Members of City Council. Thank you for your time this evening. I'm Dr. Costin, an Assistant Professor at Virginia Commonwealth University, and a member of RTAP, the Richmond Transparency and Accountability Project. Earlier today, each of you were emailed a copy of RTAP's report, Our Streets, Our Safe Policing in Richmond. This report outlines our campaign for police accountability in Richmond. One of our major goals was to obtain data from the Richmond Police Department about how residents of Richmond are being policed. Our analysis of RPD's own data demonstrates troubling racial disparities in policing in Richmond, with black residents more likely to be stopped by police, more likely to be arrested by police, and more likely to have force used against them by police. I would be happy to discuss these disparities in more detail if I have time, but I intend to focus my comments on the implementation of the Richmond Police Department's new records management system, a system that City Council approved the funding for and must also be accountable for. The racial disparities that we uncovered through our analysis of RPD's own data raised red flags for us about the potential use and impacts of this new technology, especially as predictive policing technologies can amplify already existing biases in policing, biases which we found in our data analysis. We raised these concerns with Mayor Stone, who promised that he would solicit community input on the implementation of this new system as soon as the contract was out of procurement. While the contract with Soma Global was finally finalized in January, Mayor Stoney has not held a public forum to solicit community input. Moreover, he declined our invitation to a public event to discuss this system and to provide the community with answers about how this system would be used. In April, we held our own event to solicit input and what I'd like to do is briefly elaborate on the community's concerns about the implementation of this system and about some of the problems associated with similar systems. 
first, residents were concerned about the fact that the community was never consulted about what they wanted or needed from this system. Despite the fact that there's going to be a public-facing portal where residents should be able to access information about policing in their community, they don't know what data will be available. They don't know what that public-facing portal will look like or how they'll be able to interact with it. If this is something for residents, they should have a say in how it looks and how it operates. Second, residents have concerns over how their personal information would be used. How would their information be shared with other agencies? How will inconsistencies or errors be handled? And finally, residents had major concerns about how this could worsen racial disparities that are already present in policing enrichment. Some of global prides themselves on being a leader in predictive policing technologies, and these technologies use algorithms to predict where crime might occur based on prior crime data. One of the biggest drawbacks to systems like these is that if human bias is present in the crime data that we already have, the algorithms used for predictive policing will reflect and amplify that bias. Mayor Stoney broke his promise to listen to the community on how the Richmond Police Department captures and shares information. We are calling on City Council to ensure that the Richmond Police Department is transparent about how it plans to use this system and how it plans to implement this system. We demand that City Council, as our elected representatives, hold a public meeting on RPD's new records management system, a system that you all chose to fund. This meeting must have the opportunity for community input. It must be transparent and accountable. And it's one critical step in creating a community that is healthy and thriving for all Richmonders. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Nelson. The next speaker is Stephanie Rizzi. This is for my father. Just wait till your asses turn 18, then it's mine. That is the prediction a Richmond City police officer made about the future prospects of three African-American children standing in front of Albert Hill Middle School on March 28th. If predictive policing via use of some of global technologies is implemented in our city, the officer's suit-saving abilities may well be spot on. The mass incarceration of black youth will continue to rise. Anyone with superficial knowledge of the scientific method knows when a hypothesis goes untested, unchallenged, it can then lead to false positive results. To selective perception, confirmation bias, looking for whatever confirms the theory you hold and ignoring the rest. So when a location-based predictive policing tells an officer to go into a neighborhood to patrol for crime, the officer is more likely to find supposed criminal activity by the residents of those neighborhoods, even if the same behaviors are happening elsewhere. I live across the street from a park that is supposed to close at dusk. Routinely, there are groups of what appear to be mostly white youth in the park during late night hours, making so much noise that my neighbors and I have trouble sleeping. When I call the police seeking assistance, what I often hear are police officers who drive by, flashlights at the park, and never have any direct contact with the offenders. Once I asked to speak with an officer hoping to get better results, and he told me, they aren't hurting anyone, they're just college kids. In my experience, black neighborhood kids like my own son are treated like they are up to something as soon as they step out of their homes, and college students are frequently given free passes. So. The fact that predictive policing is already occurring in the city of Richmond and is deeply affecting communities of color, which have already suffered from a history of redlining, poor schooling, and other systemic barriers to economic stability. Data released by the Richmond Police Department and analyzed by the Richmond Transparency and Accountability Project show that while Richmond is 
to ask you to hold your applause. Thank you. Madam Clark, next speaker. The next speaker is Wanda Stallings. Good evening, council persons, Madam President. I don't like to come down here, but when I come down here, I need city council not to listen to me, but to hear what I am saying. I would like to know when city council has the meetings, do they ever consider those people for the rock of this city? My daddy always said, if you never know where you come from, you know you don't know where you're going. We as citizens did not run to the existing counties when taxes rose, when real estate levels dropped. We, we hung in there. But right now, this city has become totally regentrified. In my neighborhood, we got realtors selling houses for 85, renovate them, and they're $660,000. Not one black person can come back into my neighborhood, which was almost 100% black. No more can that happen. The city says it needs more income. Well, let me throw a couple of uh, examples out here for you that might be able to help. The same way that city council and the city makes us pay uh, tag tax for our dogs and collects that, why can't we here now charge for every bicycle? There's 10,000 plus bicycles in this city. When I was growing up, we had to go to the fire station or in the city hall, pay $5 and get a little license tag on our, on our bike before we could ride our streets. What's happening now, we've got a mayor who I, I don't know why, was riding a scooter on the sidewalk. Well, who's going to pay for that? DMV, we're in charge for mopeds, tag tax. Why can't the city bring some kind of extra income for that? We as vehicle owners have to pay DMV tax, city personal property tax, wow, cars, trailers, boats. We have to pay state inspection, gas tax, insurance. But the bike lanes have more rights than we do. We have to stay three feet from them. Not only that, their signage is better. We can't even see our stop signs, no left turn, right turn. I can guarantee you. You can see right lane, and they pay nothing for the roads that we have been paying taxes for in the foundation of the city. And, and I'm asking that somebody do something to tax these bicycles. Why do we get everything for free and we have to continue to pay for everything? Thank y'all. Have a great one. Thank you, Ms. Stallings. The next speaker is Matthew Perry. Good evening. My name is Matthew Perry, and I'm here on behalf of Richmond Community Bail Fund, of which I am a co-director with Ashton Mejias, and on behalf of the clients we serve. We join our friends and neighbors in the Richmond community in asking City Council to take the first steps in the long process of making our city a safer and more equitable home for all residents, regardless of race, class, or gender. We recognize that this undertaking will ultimately require a more just distribution of resources like housing, food, and education. We also recognize the urgent necessity of satisfying smaller, more short-term benchmarks along the road to racial and economic justice, which is why we are here to voice our profound support for police accountability alongside the Richmond Transparency and Accountability Project. As an organization that supports people incarcerated before they receive a disposition, 
we are highly attuned to the ways in which an encounter with the police can harmfully disrupt all aspects of a person's life. We have clients who, because of a single arrest, lost access to housing, drug treatment services, and employment, all before they receive a day in court. Because each police-civilian interaction carries life-altering and, in the case of Marcus David Peters and many others, life-ending consequences, our law enforcement transparency and accountability mechanisms need to be robust and muscular. Our current status quo falls shamefully short of this bar, but the RPD's decision to update its records management system for the first time in over a decade presents us with an opportunity to move closer to a sufficiently just system of law enforcement. With this in mind, we urge the adoption of a data collection, of a data collection system that collects quality, publicly available, and accessible information. Additionally, we want to emphasize that the value of data is determined by the quality and character of its collection methodology. Therefore, in order for RPD to produce data in a way that aligns with notions of transparency and accountability, we need to ensure that we, the community, are involved in shaping the data collection system on the front end. We also want to convey our resolute, option, uh, resolute opposition to any and all forms of predictive policing. In jurisdictions across the United States, it has proved unreliable, undemocratic, and racially biased. Lastly, we would like to echo the calls for civilian oversight of law enforcement, a step which is clearly and absolutely necessary if we want to achieve even the most modest form of police accountability. We will close with the following statement. Mayor Stoney broke his promise to listen to the community on how the Richmond Police Department captures and shares information on policing with the public. We demand that City Council, as our elected representatives, holds a public meeting on the RPD's new records management system, a system that you chose to fund. This meeting must have the opportunity for community input, and it must be but the start of an ongoing conversation. This is part of our larger demand for a transparent and accountable police department. This is one critical step towards true safety, healthy and thriving communities for all Richmonders. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Perry. And Madam President, that concludes the list of citizen comment period speakers for this evening.